If you are a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that the TriDoc is well-versed in the science of endurance sport. If you are looking for a coach who will bring that kind of insight to coaching, someone who brings more than 20 years of experience in racing and the knowledge that comes with years of coaching and both USAT and Ironman U coaching certifications, then maybe the TriDoc is someone you should consider for your coach to help you take your training in racing to the next level. As a member of the staff at LifeSport Coaching, Jeff Sankoff can get you access to team workouts and camps as well as discounts on clothing, nutrition products, and even bikes. So if you are thinking about a triathlon coach to help you achieve your performance goals, visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com to see how the TriDoc can help you get to where you want to be in triathlon. Those websites again, tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com. Hello, and welcome to the June 3rd, 2022 episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I recently competed in the Chattanooga 70.3 race in Tennessee, and I have to tell you, it was so great to get back to racing. I was especially glad to have finally been out of Colorado for the annual May Winter Surprise. That is the one last hurrah that Mother Nature seems to throw at us pretty much every year in the Rocky Mountains. Almost like a message to not get too comfortable with summer because this is what I have in store for you in just a few short months. At any rate, while I was enjoying the warm and somewhat humid sunshine of Chattanooga, my friends and family were dealing with a late May winter blast of cold weather and more than a foot of heavy wet snow. Got to say that I wasn't all that sad to miss out on that. Leading up to my race, and in the couple of weeks following it though, I had my usual opportunity to spend some time lurking and occasionally posting on the dedicated group for the race on Facebook. I've spoken in the past about how much I find these groups entertaining because of the way the exact same things tend to get discussed with so much angst by participants who are new to the sport, which gives me an opportunity to give some reassurances and uh, opine to many about how not to stress on things you can't control. And in many cases, I also see the same kinds of things being stressed about by people who should know better and have been around for a while. You know, the usual things, things that you never have any ability to have any impact on, but people love to lose their poop over anyways. The weather, the water temperature, whether or not wetsuits will be allowed, you know, the the regular rigmarole. But a couple of other themes caught my eye this time around, and I wanted to make mention of them here because I think they're worth noting. First, leading up to the race, and especially afterwards, I was really quite surprised to see the amount of discussion around salt, specifically salt that you take in. Now, I know that the misconceptions about salt are legion. Every triathlete out there seems to believe that if they don't take something like 10% of their body weight of the stuff, that they're going to be unable to complete the race. And this belief is proselytized with the ardent fervor of a pastor in a rural Tennessee church on a Sunday morning. I came across several threads before the race in which people were very concerned that they would not have enough salt with them, and then after the race, saw more where athletes were expressing thanks to others who so willingly sacrificed their own supplies to them, and that if they hadn't, they were sure they would never have been able to complete the race itself. Okay, I think you know if you've been listening to this podcast that I believe that this is complete rubbish. 
I've talked about this several times. The amount of salt that you need during a race, even one as hot and humid as Chattanooga, is simply nowhere close to as much as these people think it is, and half again what they're actually taking. I believe this is even proven by the fact that if an athlete can give up so much of this incredibly valuable resource to a struggling athlete, then this proves the point that they are carrying far too much in the first place and don't need nearly as much as they thought. On top of that, the stubbornness of the belief that the only thing that prevented cramping was taking gigantic piles of salt is of course not anywhere close to the truth as I have discussed ad nauseum. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing here. If you want to hear all the details, please take some time to revisit episodes 38 and 39 of this very podcast, and I hope that you will share that information with some of your friends who also have the same belief. Yes, of course you need salt. You cannot rehydrate with water alone, because that would be dangerous. But most sports drinks, gels, and fuels have more than enough, and you simply don't have to take all the rest of these tablets, sticks, or licks. They are a waste of time and money, and the surest way to getting your stomach upset, which, incidentally, was another common theme on the Facebook group. The number of people who complained of GI upset and an inability to take nutrition. In most cases... I found a very direct correlation with the same people who had very large salt ingestions. So the people who were taking the most salt also had the most GI upset, and we know that those two things are very closely associated. Now, another common theme that I saw after the race was race reports, in which the athlete would talk about how surprised they were that they could not perform on the run. This was usually preceded by some pretty dramatic descriptions of how the swim would have been great if not for all the people in their way, and how incredible their bike was, though they took issue with all of the poor cyclists who also got in their way. Not once did I see an athlete like this own up to perhaps erring in their execution. Not once did someone say, maybe I should have backed off on the bike a little bit so that I had more left on the run. Not once did I see a comment about how they enjoyed the day. Rather, they spent most of their time finding things external to themselves to blame for their issues and results, and not once really appreciate that they were out there racing and had a good time. Look, I get it. I have had races go south on me as well, and for a long time, I didn't want to face the reality that, in fact, the reason I was having trouble had nothing to do with anyone but myself. Either I wasn't training enough, or smart enough, or I didn't execute well. It's much easier to blame others than it is to look inward, but I promise, if you want to improve, the best way to do so is to stop finding things external to you to blame for your results, and instead, look in the mirror and ask, what could I have done better? And how will I do so next time? That, my friends, is a lesson that we can all learn from. And for the record, I had a really solid day. I planned my race and executed it to perfection. I used exactly zero supplements or salt and had exactly zero cramps nor GI issues. I did two weeks of heat acclimation, as described in episode 17 of this podcast. And for the first time ever, I had a really great day with my age group. Now, this is not intended as any kind of bragging or self-congratulations. I offer it only as an example that I practice what I preach and how I evaluate my own performances and how I incorporate science in my assessments of the products and techniques that I review on this program to make me a better and more competitive triathlete. And I dare say that I think if you follow the same kind of program, the same kind of self-introspection and follow the science, you too can have similar results. 
On the show today, I'm going to look at some recently published research on how hydration status can affect an athlete's perception of their effort. We know that hydration status plays a role in our ability to perform well, especially in warmer environments like in Chattanooga a couple of weeks ago. But what if on top of that, being dehydrated also makes efforts feel more difficult? Well, I look at this recently published science that's coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by Irish physiotherapist and running superstar Owen Everard. Owen is an avid listener of the podcast and contacted me to chat about how he believes that strength and plyometrics can be integrated into a triathlete's training regimen in order to make them faster and more injury resistant. And that conversation's coming up afterwards. Before all of that, though, I want to take a moment to remind you about the opportunities that exist for you if you become a Patreon supporter of this podcast. For about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you could sign up to support this podcast and in doing so, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out every month. Right now, there are interviews with Joe Friel, Sky Munch, Laura Siddle, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, and many others, all available on a private feed just for my supporters. And now, while supplies last, for those of you who subscribe at the $10 a month level, you also get a really awesome Boko Tridoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to this really cool thank you gift. The URL for more information where you could see the hat and sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thank you so much in advance just for considering. As I mentioned at the top of the program, I recently competed at the 70.3 event in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That race is well known for its current assisted swim, the scenic bike course, and the bridges that you run over as part of the run course. And another thing that it's known for is its weather. Tennessee in late May can be steamy with daytime highs in the 90s and humidity levels, well, not far below that. And when I raced a couple of weekends ago, it wasn't quite that bad. But staying cool and hydrated were hugely important for anyone who wanted to have success that day. Hydration is something that I've talked about a few times on this program and remains a popular subject amongst triathletes and a ripe area for product manufacturers to exploit because of that. I came across an interesting paper in the medical literature recently that put a whole new perspective on hydration that I wanted to share because I think that it's potentially really interesting. This paper summarized a body of research that has been done over the past few years, looking at the impact of hydration status, not just on how we perform, but on how effort is perceived. Now, why, you might ask, is this important? Well, let's acknowledge that training and racing for endurance sport can often be a challenge. Of course, there is the physical aspect of getting your body to adapt to the increasing load and stress associated with more volume and intensity needed to get faster and go further. But then there is also the mental fortitude needed to push the body through these increasingly difficult workouts. And it's this latter aspect of training that I think is often underappreciated. Many athletes believe that in order to become a better swimmer, biker, or runner, that they just need to train more. But few will consider that in order to be able to train with higher quality, they have to first leverage the ability of their brains to resist the urge to tell their muscles to just stop. Now, it's long been understood that how we perceive effort has a lot to do with how long we will will then be able to sustain that effort. 
Before we had reliable metrics that we could get from things like power meters or heart rate monitors, the rating of perceived exertion, or RPE, was the most widely used scale to allow athletes to give feedback to coaches on how hard they were training and for coaches to then prescribe workout intensities. Originally developed by Gunnar Borg, the RPE has been extensively validated to be universally applicable across sports, age groups, gender, and populations, and it's a reliable and reproducible means for assessing or prescribing exercise intensity. But one of the most important things to recognize about RPE is that because it's entirely subjective, it can mean very different things to different people. For example, one athlete might report an RPE of 8 on 10, and I should point out that the scale can be reported out of 10 in a modified version or out of 20 in its original form, but both of them are considered to be valid. In any case, one athlete could report an RPE for 8 out of 10 when cycling at a given percent of their FTP, and a different athlete might report an RPE of 6 for exactly the same effort. That's where this subjectiveness comes in. The difference between those two athletes is how they perceive their effort, and that relates entirely to their brains. Now, I want to point out that RPE is often interpreted as being almost a standard scale across athletes, that an RPE of 6 will represent a similar percent of maximal effort for any two athletes, but the reality is that this is just untrue. The subjective nature of perception makes this clearly impossible. RPE is still very useful, but it means that it is more useful for individuals to compare their own efforts to each other than it is to compare different individuals to one another. Now, this tendency to perceive effort differently is frequently cited as the reason why beginners in endurance sport don't stick with it. If a new athlete perceives the workouts as being too difficult, they are less likely to keep going. Similarly, it's also proposed as a reason for why some experienced athletes have success when others might not. An athlete who can push harder at the end of a race because he or she perceives the effort as being less than others will see better results than one who perceives that same effort as simply much more difficult. Now, there are a number of physiological and psychological stressors that can impact how someone perceives their effort or perceives or actually rates their perceived exertion. So it follows that if those different stressors can be kept to a minimum, athletes could improve their ability to perform. Remember, your ability to perform has a lot to do with how you perceive the effort. One of the physiological factors that has been frequently hypothesized to impact how we perceive effort, but remains a little bit unclear to this point as to its actual role, is hydration status. Now, I've spoken on the podcast before about how hydration status has clearly been shown to have a role in affecting physical performance, and we know this because of how it impacts cardiovascular and thermoregulatory systems. With increasing levels of dehydration, heart rate has to go up in order to maintain oxygen and nutrient delivery, and core temperature rises because of an impaired ability to offload thermal energy via the normal processes that are so dependent on water. It has also, though, been suggested that independent of these physical processes, dehydration might have an impact on the psychological perception of effort and that this can manifest as decreased performance completely independent of any physical manifestations. A recent study published in the Journal of Exercise Science and Fitness collated the results of 16 different studies that have evaluated this specific question to answer several 
different research questions. First, does RPE change in response to exercise-induced dehydration? Second, what is the magnitude of the change as dehydration increases? Third, is the magnitude of the change practically important? And four, are there any identifiable factors that may moderate the relationship between dehydration and RPE? Last, how are cardiovascular strain caused by dehydration related to RPE? Now, as a reminder, this kind of meta-analysis is always impacted by the size and the quality of the studies that they bring together. And in this case, the individual of those 16 studies were pretty small, and the quality of the experiments in each was a little bit variable. Nonetheless, a total of 147 athletes were included, of whom only two were women. And the vast majority of the studies employed cycling as the exercise to be studied. So the broad generalizability of the findings, and especially its applicability to women, has to be questioned. Still, despite these important limitations, there are some broad conclusions that were made in the meta-analysis that I believe are important to consider and should form the basis of further studies that could be conducted in the future. First and foremost, the researchers showed that in answer to their first question, RPE did indeed increase for the same level of effort when athletes were dehydrated. However, the reported increase was pretty small until the level of dehydration reached about 3%. Only at that point did the difference in RPE become greater than one point for the same level of effort in the same athlete. Remember, RPE can't really be used to compare athletes to each other, but it's pretty reliable for comparing efforts within the same athlete, and what we see here is that within the same athlete, performing at the same objective measure, so a percentage of FTP, the athletes perceived a greater effort when they became more dehydrated. The authors of the article argued that while this was an admittedly small difference, it's still likely important in certain contexts. For example, for recreational athletes who are getting started in endurance sport, an athlete who perceives an effort as even slightly more difficult is less likely to keep persisting with the activity than if they perceived it to be less hard. Alternatively, for a competitive athlete needing to exert themselves in order to obtain a personal best, that difference in RPE could also be pretty important. The authors admitted, though, that no studies have been done to demonstrate that there are any true performance differences associated with the observed small RPE difference. So at this point, this is still hypothetical. Interestingly, when looking at all of the available data, the authors could find no correlation between RPE and exertion specifically related to any of humidity, exercise duration, exercise intensity, aerobic capacity, nor ambient temperature, indicating that in isolation, none of those could explain the difference in RPE seen as dehydration increases. So just to clarify, when they controlled for all of these other factors, it was only the dehydration that could account for the difference in RPE. None of those other factors, humidity, the temperature, aerobic capacity of the athlete, could explain the difference in RPE. It was only the dehydration that really pointed to this difference. There was, however, an association with increased heart rate seen as both RPE and level of dehydration increased. Now, this is not surprising. We know dehydration causes an increase in heart rate. However, while heart rate and RPE tracked quite closely, some studies demonstrated that this was not always the case. And so heart rate could not be said to be the determining factor for why RPE increased with dehydration, only that it is closely associated. 
So what then can we take away from all of this, and how can athletes use this information? Well, as I previously noted, hydration status is very important for maintaining both cardiovascular and thermoregulatory functions. This is particularly true when exercising in warmer environments, when athletes face the double-edged sword of being more prone to dehydration and being more reliant on the proper functioning of both of those systems. Knowing that the perception of effort is also impacted by hydration status, however slightly, only serves to further highlight the importance of prioritizing hydration going into and during an event in such a climate. Clearly, on hotter days, when you are prone to becoming dehydrated late in the race, this is also the time when perception of effort is often highest as well. By focusing as much as possible on good hydration practices and keeping yourself at or below that 3% dehydration status for as long as possible, you might be able to mitigate this issue and give yourself an advantage over other athletes who don't do as good of a job as this, both because you'll be able to perform better, but also because you won't perceive the effort as hard as they will. Essentially, by continuously taking in adequate fluids and electrolytes, it may be possible then to go harder for longer without perceiving it as quite as difficult. Though to be fair, the emphasis here has to remain on may, and until we have better studies, can't really be as concrete as we would like. Do you have a question for me to consider on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. And there's always the option of joining our private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook. Head over there right now, answer the very easy questions. I'll admit you right away. You can join the conversation and submit questions for future consideration as well. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Owen Everard. He is a chartered physiotherapist with a PhD in biomechanics from Ireland, and more importantly, a listener of the podcast. He contacted me because he's the founder of BackAwareBelt.com and EverardPilates.com and has an interest in helping runners prevent and treat injuries. Professionally, he has lectured in Ireland for over 10 years on sports medicine and biomechanics, publishing several peer-reviewed studies. And from a sporting perspective, he has quite an impressive palmares. He's won five national senior running titles. He has represented Ireland on the international stage from 800 meters all the way to 10K cross country. He has a sub four minute. He is a sub four minute miler. Has run sub 14 minutes for 5K just last year and just last week ran 29 minutes for 10K. He's also the current indoor 3,000 meter European over 35 champion, but he slowed down just long enough to join me here to discuss <laughs> the importance of strength, Pilates, and just overall plyometrics to helping us triathletes and normal mere mortal runners uh, in uh, preventing and treating injuries. Thank you for contacting me and for agreeing to join me on the podcast, Owen. Jeff, thank you so much. I really enjoy this podcast. I listen to Spotify on my runs. So uh, it's great to be, it's great to be a guest. Well, I don't know if I'll have to skip. Uh, I'll have to, I'll have to shorten the uh, the episodes to make them <laughs> doable for your running. <laughs> yeah. My goodness, your uh, your speed is very impressive. Uh, hopefully, some of it will rub off during the the, the course of this conversation. <laughs> so um, I'm really glad that you got in touch because uh, we all know that running injuries are very common for runners. I've actually spoken with uh, a couple of physiotherapists over the course of uh, the time that I've been doing the. Podcast, but I'm 
always interested in getting other perspectives. And when you contacted me, uh, I was intrigued by uh, the notion of using Pilates. I personally don't, but I know many who do. So uh, let's get right to it. Um, I, I think that we all think of running injuries as being pretty much overused kind of things. Uh, but why don't you tell me from your perspective, why do we get injuries? What are the most common ones and what can we do to try to prevent them? Yeah, well, I think you're you're dead right, Jeff. And obviously I would listen to some of the other episodes and obviously your medical background can um, have, has given listeners a really good perspective on why we get injuries. But it is that thing that if we compare the injuries triathletes get to um, soccer players, to field-based sports, we don't really get muscle injuries. They are those overuse injuries. Um, generally, it's overloading the passive system, the passive system being the tendons, the ligaments, the joints. That's why we get plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis or tendinosis, whichever one you want, um, knee, knee pain, hip pain, because what happens is we generally, the muscular system isn't firing the way it should. And running is all about like absorbing loads and then pushing off again. So that means that the passive system has to absorb those loads because the muscular system isn't taking its fair share. In addition, then, um, a lot of people without a structured plan, they tend to do the same. They might have the same loop that they do or the same routine. So they they run at the same pace or they cycle or they swim in the same uh, range of motion. And what it does is that we get the passive system, which is working more already because the muscular system isn't working. And then we have this smaller range of motion. So only that particular, say, part of the joint or that particular part of the tendon is getting overloaded. And this that overload then can lead to these injuries. So three things I think people can do straight away as a takeaway is the first one is variation. It's really important to have variety. And that's why, like, you know, Coaches like yourself, Jeff, are so important for people, not just not just for physiological benefits or performance, but also from an injury prevention type of point of view, because you'll generally just naturally put in, say, tempo work, interval work, some longer training, some um, some shorter training. I really recommend doing like hill strides either at the end of a run or before, say, uh, a workout, because they increase the range of motion that you're going to do because you're trying to run a bit quicker you're naturally going to engage the muscular system more which is going to take pressure off the passive system wake up the muscular system and um you know get the joints move and get that uh, synovial fluid which is essentially like just oiling the joints the second thing i would recommend and then in the variation as well as having different pairs of shoes like i would wear uh racers or uh, running racers for for workouts then you might have your eyewear you know Nike Pegasus or whatever for your longer runs or having different shoes running on different surfaces uh, and different terrains will all increase the variation that we're getting which challenges the body in different ways so not one particular point part is getting overloaded the second thing then would be like we said there activate the muscular system and obviously I run um a Pilates program with we have our back wearbelt.com but you don't have to just do Pilates and if you are doing it you want the muscles burning or you could do a gym 
a gym kind of workout. The idea here from an injury prevention point of view would be imagine waking it up. It's like if me and you, Jeff, went into a bar, I don't, it sounds terrible and Irish person's talking about fighting, but if I'm asleep in the car and you're in there and someone starts a fight, well, if I'm asleep, I'm not, I can't help you. If I'm awake and you're in a fight, well, I'm naturally going to be helping. And that's the same with the muscular system. If it's woken up, it's naturally going to take the load off the passive structures. So, but we need to wake it up. And that's where you need to have some formalized training because running in particular is, and cycling are very good for uh, burning calories and getting cardiovascularly fit, but don't let, uh, lend themselves to really activating or working the muscles. It's much more of a isometric, it's much more that we stay in the same position and try and move off. So having like, you know, a formalized training at least once a week that activates the muscles. And again, you want you want these muscles burning. That's one of the key things I say to people. Like they're like, oh, I'll be worried about delayed muscle soreness the next day. I was like, that's a great sign. It shows that you're using the muscles again. Like we're sitting for eight to ten hours a day. It's going to take more than a glute stretch to get you ready for running then or cycling or swimming. It's going to take concentrate effort of really activating those muscles to get us going um so i think uh good variation some formalized strength training and then on your progressive overload if you're in a build phase not doing more than like say 10 percent each week and then dropping down for the fourth week to allow the body to recover and if you're at a level of training you like having the key variables in your training. So what I mean by that is if you're doing a lot of, like say if you're, I know you've completed Ironmans, uh, Jeff, like if you are doing that, just keeping in some like strides or shorter um, spins on the bike, just like little bits that get used to that if you did drop down to say an Olympic uh, triathlon event, it's, it's, it's rapid changes in the stress on the body that can, that causes overload as opposed to like if you're used to longer longer cycles longer runs and your body's prepared for that you have a level of fitness to to be um to be able to handle that the thing that will catch you out is that then you drop from all say longer you know kind of zone two aerobic stuff and then you go back and try prepare for a triathlon an olympic triathlon distance and that the shorter quicker stuff can catch you out because you have no um none of that incorporated in your training. And similarly then, if you've done, say, in the summer, a lot of Olympic uh, distance, and then you're trying to build back up quickly to Ironman distance, well, having keeping some of the longer cycles in there or some of the longer runs or some of that aerobic work, even when you're doing some of the shorter work, just allows your body not to have these massive spikes. And that's called that acute to chronic workload ratio. So those would be the three things. Maybe keep some variation in your training, um, have some formalized strength training at least once a week. And then lastly would be uh, making sure that you're not progressing more than 10% in a week. Or if you're at a level that you're you're happy with, making sure that you're including the key elements in some proportion in your training. 
So I like everything that you said. I want to go back and revisit some of the things because I think they're really important and I want to highlight some of them. And I also want to ask some more questions because you've, you've covered a lot in there. I've, <laughs> I, I have proselytized about strength training for a really long time. Uh, you know, we, I've talked on this podcast about how there's unfortunately not a lot of research that actually shows that strength training benefits injuries, except for recently, what I guess about two years ago now, there was a paper that showed that strength training the muscles of the feet actually decreased injuries all through the leg. That was the first time a study actually showed a positive association. But I, I believe very strongly that strength training, uh, like you do, uh, has a significant impact on decreasing injuries. Uh, because, like you said, I mean, the legs are essentially working as springs. You know, we think about running as a, you know, we think about impact sports as physical contact sports. But the reality is, is running is probably one of the biggest impact sports there is, right? Yeah. Because you're putting your body force through your feet. Uh, you know, every time you land, it's almost 10 times your body weight going through the foot all the way up through the, the spine. And that has to be absorbed. And it's absorbed essentially through your, like you said, tendons, joints, and then it that energy is stored. And then pushed back through the ground to propel you forward. And it's that continuous uh, over uh, time of that energy coming up through the leg and then being expended back down through the ground that results potentially in injury. And I really like this idea that you really eloquently put there, this idea of adding variation to the terrain you run on, to the way you run, the motion you run as a means of mitigating overuse because you're not doing the same thing over and over. You're, you're accounting for a variety in terrain, accounting to variety in your gait, and that is a way to um, allow your joints, allow your tendons, allow your muscles to experience different movement and therefore mitigate this idea that you're, you know, you're not yeah. going to be doing overuse because you're changing things. I really like that. Yeah, that's, um, that's well pushed. That's better than I put it. <laughs> one thing, one thing also that you mentioned, and I, I hear this a lot from people and uh, I know, we, I, I'm pretty sure I know what your answer is going to be because it's probably going to mirror mine. But, uh, you know, when you look at runners, I mean, I'm looking at you, uh, uh, you know, I'm watching you on video and, you know, the, the fastest runners, the most elite runners are generally little people. And when we talk about doing strength training, you know, most people think about people in the gym, yeah. pumping iron, lifting large things over their head. Uh, they, they have a hard time imagining runners doing that. So, um, you know, I mean, here you are running a 14 minute 5k. I can only dream of running anything <laughs> close to that. And I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a little person. I'm not overweight by any means, but I'm just, uh, I, I'm just, I have large muscle mass. So, and I'm not bragging. It's not something I want. I'd like to be smaller so I could run faster. Um, you know, how do you, how do you sort of reassure people that no strength training doesn't necessarily come with building muscle mass. It's just about strength and not necessarily getting big. Yeah, exactly. And it's your straight your strength to weight ratio that really goes. Well, I've trained, uh, I won't mention her name because just I haven't asked her this before this podcast, but I've trained and gone a lot of training camps with like a girl who's been senior European champion multiple times. And um, she used to do strength training like four times a week. It's, it's because it's basically because running, if you're running or cycling or swimming at a sufficient um, amount, that's going to burn excessive calories so you're only going to put on weight when your calories uh, is way in excess of what you're doing so then this, the 
the calories get converted to mass uh, to muscle mass. If you're still running or swimming or cycling, um, it's just going to lean. It's going to essentially lean you out a little bit. Do you know? It's um, she put on. She was like had no weight at all, um, and she was a cross country and a marathon runner. So. I think that is well, and it's also the kind of exercises you're doing, right? I mean, you know, to, to put on muscle mass, you have to lift successively higher amounts of weight at, at you know, uh, higher reps. Whereas when you're trying to do strength, you're not necessarily increasing the mass you're lifting. You're just increasing them uh, with usually standard amounts of reps. Yeah. Uh, you're trying to build strength as opposed to build muscle mass. Yeah, exactly. And even with that, though, because a lot of the times I would be recommending, like, say, 12 to 15 reps of things um, with short recoveries, which is what people would do for um it, it is what people would do when they're trying to build muscle mass. It gets that kind of, say for men, it gets that like hormonal response. But we, when you're a distance runner or you're, you're doing, our calorie deficits are so much that there's a thing called protein sloughing. So a lot of times you're degrading the protein. So it just means that there isn't sufficient protein there to like build excessive amount of mass because you're going to as you're running and you need to run or you need to cycle. And again, as you said there, it's, I'd be advocating now, as I said, that girl did four times a week with absolutely, if you saw this girl, you would think she had never seen a gym. You would know she's, she looks strong, but she didn't look, you would never think she actually was able in a gym lifting what she was doing. But for me, it's about like thresholds. It's like, you know, once a week, twice a week in a gym or Pilates is not going to be sufficient, especially when there isn't like a, a structured diet to try increase um, and try increase it. You always see it. I remember with people, um, you know, women in particular worried about like putting on muscle. It's like, oh, I don't want like Arnold Schwarzenegger arms. It's like, are you taking steroids? And they're like, no, it's like, then don't worry about it. It's not going to happen yeah. to you. You don't, you know, it's not as long as you're still yeah and it's also it like you said nutrition is such an important facet of this right i mean to put muscle mass you have to be taking in a lot of protein and most endurance athletes are not doing that and it's the way you lift and also the amount of protein you take in that that matters and we want to be clear we don't want people running a calorie deficit we just want them running we want them running the amount of calories they need and not an excess amount of calories which is what would lead them because weightlifters take in huge huge amounts of calories in excess of what they actually need. The idea being that those excess calories go to build muscle mass, which is not what we want as endurance athletes. And so we, we want to be in caloric balance, uh, not in a yeah. deficit. And even, even if you have a slight surplus, like I know some runners who are very elite, who we eat like, like, like <clears throat> horses. I don't know if that's a expression in America, but like we, we a lot because you do need a lot of, you know, your, your vegetables and, uh, calories to sustain your running i know in cycling you can get away with a little bit more but one genetically we're probably not built like that and then two as you said because you're doing um aerobic events it's just not going to be in an issue i haven't seen it in an issue with any elite runner and as i said i know ones that have done like three sessions a week say i was with the australian team they used to do like say triple tuesday triple thursday and triple Sat- saturday but that was like a run like a, a workout in the morning, about two o'clock, they do a gym session and then an easy run on Tuesday evening. Like it is impossible to be putting on weight when you're doing running. Like your body is like, well, I can't be carrying this amount of yeah. 
excess of weight, say. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to talk also about this notion of running stride because we hear a lot about how stride uh, and cadence can also uh, play a role in running uh, economy yeah. and how running economy is a you know catchphrase for being able to run quickly and being able to, to do running well. Uh, so how does that factor into injury prevention? Yeah, well, I think, as you said, like running economy is important just to define for people again is that it's like how much petrol or how much uh, gas you use in your tank so it's like how efficient is the car how efficient are you at using the energy you have so ways of improving that is through strides and it's that variation again where if we're doing strides like hill strides or um uh, strides on the flat because we are opening up the the joints they're moving more and the more movement in the joints, the more that synovial fluid gets kind of produced to keep the joints uh, loose, essentially. It also, because again, we're uh, consciously trying to go quicker, it allows the muscles to be more activated, the core to be more engaged, which will help you when you go to, um, to slower speeds. So that's a big thing, as I said, it's that activation of the muscular system. We always recommend people to do like, say, like 90% don't ever force these things because obviously if you're using the muscular system, we don't want muscular strains. Just trying to run slightly quicker will will start getting the benefits. And as you get better at that over weeks, you'll just naturally, your your speed will improve. Um, Then because obviously if you're running quicker, your body has to try work it, it'll work it out itself. Our body will always adapt to the stress we place on it. So if we're putting a, a stress on the body, where we are trying to move and run quicker, it will start adapting to be able to move and run quicker. And then we can use those mechanics that we develop at slightly uh, quicker speeds for more general, slower running, which will then essentially help our running economy. So can you, uh, not everybody's going to be familiar with the technique of strides or striders. Can you define those? Yeah, so usually I would start with maybe four at like 15 seconds. What I would what I would recommend people to do, as I said, the first thing is don't overly, uh, don't try to overly sprint these. Feel about 90% effort, like you could always go a little bit quicker. What you generally do is you start quite gradual, you build into it to about like in the first say two or three seconds, build in where then you pick up this pace about 90% effort, not like I ran... 18 seconds for 100 meters before I'll try do 90% of that. Just what feels like a good quick pace and then gradually slow down in the last two to three seconds. So, you know, we're only at top running for maybe like seven seconds with, um, you know, maybe five seconds to build up, five seconds to, you know, three to five seconds to build up that pace, hold it, and then three to five seconds to cool down. And then, right, and the traditional the traditional sort of thing about strides is uh, when you're doing strides, it's really opening up your um, your stride. So yes. you're, you're, you're really like lifting that front knee and, and pushing off with that back leg. And really it's, it's, it, they're also called giant strides. That's another way of thinking about it. And the idea is, is you're running along at your normal pace. And then for 15 to 20 seconds, as Owen was saying, you then suddenly over 
three to five seconds, you pick up the pace, you suddenly open up your stride and you, 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 you ramp up your speed to about 90% of your effort. You carry that for about 10 seconds and then you take five seconds to slow back down to your, your uh, previous running pace. And you repeat that four to five times. Yes, exactly. And take about 90 seconds of a break, like easy time. The idea should be trying to like have a, a good effort as opposed to an aerobic effort here. This shouldn't be overly taxing on the aerobic system where you're tired. This should be just like feeling good. Generally, people would do the, those either the day before a workout at the end of the run to try elicit that uh, better mechanics before we go into a run or just before a workout as well. We could do some like three strides. And again, it's just a, another way, even if you're doing a um a longer type of session it's just a good way of getting the legs turning and as i said keeping that variation and keeping that uh, muscular activation in and the advantage of this again is really just to teach yourself better running economy teach yourself better uh gait and also to uh give yourself that variation that uh, owen was talking about earlier to strengthen those muscles and to allow for uh variation both in pace and also in your gait style during every run that you do yeah and and you made a good point there jeff like in drills you could practice like say high knee drills beforehand um doing side to side different types of drills but when you're doing your runs or you're doing your strides I know some people be thinking, oh my God, what? how do I do it? Don't overly, overly think about these things. There was a nice study that looked at um, effects on running economy of people just watching a TV, people focus on their breath or f- people focus on their stride. And what they found was that people who just focused on a TV or f- focus forward actually had better running economy than those who focused on their stride or focused on their breath because those people were uh, nearly a bit too internalized in their head. The key thing to good running economy is the first one is give yourself the building blocks. You should have good mobility, generally focusing that on your ankle and your hip. Good stability that the knee stays in line, it doesn't buckle in, and good core stability. Um, and then motor, uh, good kind of motor coordination or motor control, it's called, which would be like, you know, doing some high knees, focusing on some uh, key things if you're doing like A skips or B skips. But then... Once you have those building blocks, just focus on running, just like intentionally try to pick up the pace, as Jeff was saying, and that's going to bring the benefits. Sometimes there can be paralysis by analysis. People are like, oh, I wasn't sure if I was doing it correctly or if I was lifting my knee. If you're naturally trying to run, your body will, your body after a couple of weeks of this, will just not, you'll find that you're naturally running with better mechanics than you were before because it, it doesn't. It, it adapts to the stress. So it's going to adjust as much as your body is able in that time. It's pretty amazing because, you know, I always tell people swimming is uh, the hardest thing technically to master as a yeah. triathlete, but running is something we all just naturally do. And yet when I watch people run, I'm amazed at how, uh, in fact, there's such a variety of abilities in running, not just not not just by speed like obviously there are some people who are able to run fast over long periods of time naturally but there is a variety of abilities just in terms of gait uh, yeah. i watch people run and i'm always amazed at how it's not so natural um 
you know, there are people who chronically just are unable to run faster than say a 10 minute mile, you know, 11 minute mile. And I watch their gait and they have this kind of like chronic kind of shuffle. And, uh, what's your experience in trying to get people like that to be able to improve their gait and maybe improve their speed somewhat without necessarily feeling like they're hurting themselves? Yeah, well, I think that's a great point and you do definitely see that and I actually hadn't thought of it until you said it so I'll come to that in one second where um well I'll say it now actually that when you're swimming swimming the technique is so important it's like where with running it's it's a case of just get in and well we've all been able to run since we're probably like two years old uh you know like a one-year-old we're, we're walking we're, we're running quite sufficiently by say two 18 months that um, no one ever thinks, well, we could work on that technique a little bit. Where with swimming, when we go back to it, even as adults, there's a lot of time where it is just working on the technique. We might do stuff with the, um, you know, um, different sessions could be just purely focused on technique. So I think it is something that people could adjust when they're running. The first thing I would say is that for the person, say, running a 10 or 11 minute mile, do you have those building blocks? Are you like chronically stiff? If you're sitting in your desk, say eight, 10 hours, it could be a thing of, we need to get you moving better at the hips. We need to get you activate the core. I had a, a guy who had um, a decent level sprinter and he had a hamstring injury, a pretty bad one. So he was coming to me as, as, a, as a physio patient. And after like, say eight weeks, he was back. He was good. His coach came up and his coach is very high level. Um, and he had all these books on like functional movement, which I would be into to making sure people are moving correctly. And he goes, you were seeing X. And now um, I can see his first name, actually. You were seeing Aaron. I've been trying for years to get Aaron to do these drills or run with these mechanics better. And all of a sudden now he's getting all the key things. But because we had improved his movement and his stability, and then worked on those drills that we talked about, like where in swimming, we naturally have sessions where we do it, where we just do high knees because you talked about like get that knee drive. But how many there'd be people who all they do is run. They never actually just for like 20 meters lift their knees up. Even before a session, they might just do an easy jog and then just do whatever the workout is. So having drills where you like lift your knees up, doing look up google like karaoke's where you have on your side lifting the knee then bring like lifting the knee bring it behind you lifting the knee bring it behind you perhaps in that kind of coordinated uh things like skipping like uh skipping up or skipping back or trying to backwards run these are little coordinating drills that then allow your body to have the building blocks i call them to be able to run with much better technique so once you have the building blocks, then it's a key thing of actually just practicing these things, including your strides, maybe having a couple of drills that you do in the warm up before a workout, even if it means you're cutting some of the running. Like if you cut five minutes, um, I don't know, we could talk about that for one second because I think it's pertinent where there was a good study that looked at skipping for plyometrics. And they found that like they took one group that did three to five minutes of skipping twice per week and the other group just are, are you talking about skipping rope sorry, or skipping jump rope, like jump rope you know, i forget i keep jump talking rope. yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so jumping rope they found one group that did three to five minutes of jumping rope the other group just did 
the equivalent amount of running. And the group who jump rope after 12 weeks, they had improved depth jump. So they improved plyometric performance. They had improved like tendon stiffness. So how much their tendons could absorb was improved. And they had three, their three K times were improved by 3% compared to 1.5%. So double the improvement. It's just, and I, why I love skipping just as a thing, I have a skipping, I have a jump rope in my car. I just, at the end of a run or two, just take it out. I come home a little bit early and I just jump rope. I usually go double leg for 20, single leg for 10, single leg for 10, and then one, two on my right leg, one, two on my left leg, and repeat that 10 times. I take a little break and I do that three times. What's great about jump rope was when I started, I just keep hitting the rope. I would say I did a cumulatively maybe like 10, 10 actually successful jumps in the three minutes, but I didn't keep going. The three minutes was up. Now I can do three, I just do three sets of that 20, 10, 10, and then alternate and leave it at that because again, it's that hitting that threshold. But it's that thing of, do we focus on these parts in the training? Because if you're very poor at that, that's going to get such a bigger improvement in overall performance rather than like your aerobic system is probably well-developed if you're going out for long cycles, long runs, doing your swimming anyway you'll probably get much better bang for your buck um improving the things that you don't do up to a sufficient threshold sorry there's a lot in that. well i could think of a lot of people who would enjoy adding skipping to their runs so uh that uh that that definitely is a i, I would think an easier sell than anything although skipping is very taxing it's, so it's ta- uh, it is taxing. That, doing it at the end of the run would be uh, interesting yeah it is taxing and you'll find it so much easier at the start now you could do it at the start of the run either i just find it's uh it's like and it's probably more beneficial at the end because you're warmed up and yeah exactly uh, and it you're is, gonna get it something out of it if you're yeah. tired um I usually do it on an easy day, but if you're tired, it's a great one. And having it in the car, get it done before you go inside. Because once you're inside, (laughs) if you've you've sat down or if you had your um, recovery drink, it's hard to get back out there. So it's it's just making things easy for ourselves. So, Owen, you've had a very accomplished uh, recent uh, couple of years uh, yourself as a runner. Uh, what uh, What's next for you uh, in your running career? Do you know what's funny? I had the um, I had the goal. I suppose I would have always been a miler, so like running the mile, and I would have had a lot of my most success at the mile or two mile events, like fifteen hundred and three k. And then I got to my thirties, and I was like. I just don't think I'm going to get that much quicker over these. So I'll try hit all odd numbers. So like for 3K, be sub eight minutes. For 5K, be sub 14 minutes. And then for 10K, be sub 30 minutes. So I've hit all those now. So it's a it's a little bit of limbo because it's only the start of the season. I'm going over to Belgium in about two weeks and they I will do a 5k on the track and I think that'll be my last track 5k and then I think I'll just continue to train and maybe do some more local races and um more more enjoy it rather than there's always a pressure if you want to try run your fastest I really really enjoy running but um it's an interesting one I think it's it's because I've just as you said last week I broke 30 minutes for the first time for 10k so um I just feel like I'm all ticked now so um 
probably a bit more. Well, we'll have to get you. We'll have to get you swimming and biking. That's all. We'll have to get you out on the uh, the trail. Yeah, of course, yeah. And see what I'm happens terrible there. in the swim. <laughs> so at least that's always, well, that's always humbling. Well, Owen Everhart, uh, I uh, can't thank you enough for joining me for this very interesting conversation about running, about uh, strength, and about how uh, we can be conscious of uh, running injuries and how to prevent them. Uh, thank you once again for joining me today on the TriDoc Podcast. Jeff, thank you so much. And as I said, I really enjoyed the podcast. So it's great to be on it. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episode at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.